Second Samuel chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel? the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, The word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to grow as we understand it. We pray that you would sanctify them with your truth. Uh, Bless the preaching, bless the hearing, bless each one here. May the blessings of heaven flow upon us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting how people handle disappointments quite differently, whether we're talking about uh, a lost football game or the loss of a lifetime uh, dream. Uh, Some people get really depressed and they back away and other people handle far, far greater disappointments and they take it all in stride. They handle it uh, quite well. And the amount of success does not seem to factor into uh, the differences here. Uh, For example, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in an absolutely remarkable short period of time. Uh, He was the most powerful man in the world. He had uh, wealth beyond measure, and yet when his soldiers were too weary to be even willing, in fact, they revolted. They just said, this is enough. They were not willing to go into India. He wept and wept purportedly and was so bummed out, so depressed that there were no more worlds that he could conquer. Very hard to relate to a man like that, but he could not handle the disappointment. Hugo Grotius, uh, the father of modern international law, even though a Christian, said this before he died, I have accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. And those who were listening to him probably thought, you've got to be crazy. You're one of the most successful people that we know. 
And yet, because of disappointments, uh, he was extremely, uh, extremely depressed. Uh, John uh, Quincy Adams, the sixth president, at least under our present uh, Constitution, after suffering some disappointments, wrote this in his diary. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something would be the result of my existence that would be beneficial to my species. Uh, we're going to be seeing quite a contrast between David in this chapter and those men, and we're going to be looking at the reasons why. David probably faced more disappointments than any of those men that I have listed, and yet he handled all of his disappointments uh, quite well, and that is certainly true of his disappointment in this chapter. Four times the Bible says that David had it in his heart to build God a temple. This was a, a, a lifetime dream for him that uh, he could build God something magnificent. In fact, we, we find earlier his statement that if there was one thing that he could be remembered by as a legacy after he died, he wished it could be that people would remember him for the temple that he had built. And yet God, in verses 5 through 11, told him in no uncertain terms he was not going to build that temple. And yet, despite having his dreams uh, dashed to the ground, and rather brusquely, I might add, we find David saying, Amen, Lord, whatever you want, I say amen to you. I love you. I bless you. How could I say anything but amen to you after all that you have done for me? That's, in effect, what he uh, was saying. There is not the slightest hint of resentment in David's prayer. Instead, we find a heart that is full to overflowing with God's goodness. David focused upon the wonderful promises that God had given, not upon the no. Uh, he focused upon all of the wonderful presents that were under his Christmas tree, so to speak, not upon the one present he was hoping would be under that tree, but was not there and was not going to be there, okay? Uh, he, 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 he faced this uh, very, very positively. And all the commentators that I own agree that there must have been a huge disappointment on the part of David in the first half of this chapter, and yet he responds with extravagant gratefulness and praise. What's going on? We're going to be seeing there's a lot going on. But for sure, David valued the giver more than he did the gifts. Uh, he loved God. He valued God. His whole life was wrapped up in, in serving God. And so today we're going to be looking at two things at the same time. We're going to be getting some lessons on prayer, and this is a fantastic passage on prayer. And we're going to be uh, getting some lessons on how our hearts can be prepared so that we can handle disappointments better than perhaps we have uh, in the past. Now, I've divided the passage up into seven parts. Number of perfection, right? At least more perfect than 15 points. But uh, the first thing that I want you to see is David's response to God's no is not servile. It does not flow out of fear. It does not uh, exhibit any sense of insecurity. You don't see any indication that he wonders if God loves him or not because he has not answered uh, his prayer. Instead, we see something uh, quite different. Sitting before God's throne shows a confidence in God's grace 
and shows that he had developed a very comfortable relationship with God, very similar to that between uh, Abraham and God, as well as Moses uh, and God. Now, of course, David had times when he prayed standing, he prayed kneeling, he prayed flat on his face. But of all of the postures of prayer that you find in the Scripture, this one, I think, par excellence shows that he had a sense of security in God's grace, that he had developed a relationship, uh, like I said, uh, similar to that of Moses and Abraham. There are Psalms that show that there was not a moment of the day when he was not communing with God, which means that there's not a posture of the day that would be inappropriate for him to lift up to God. I mean, he made us. He knows everything about us. Some people, you know, they think certain times a day, I can't, I can't uh, commune with God. And that's just not actually true. Now, in Psalm 63, which he wrote in the wilderness earlier, he spoke of the deep communion that he had with God while he was lying on his bed with insomnia. Now, I don't think that would be a kosher posture in the tabernacle, uh, but interestingly, this posture of sitting was. In fact, God, in several passages, uh, makes us sit before his presence in order to force our hearts to embrace the same lesson, and it's a very encouraging lesson to me. Verse 18, then David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, this has puzzled Uh, Many people, including commentators, uh, who have thought that the only appropriate uh, positions that you could uh, pray in uh, were either kneeling or standing. But I have several scriptures from Judges, Ezekiel, Luke, Acts, Ephesians, and Revelation that show that sitting can be just as appropriate as kneeling or standing. It depends on the situation. It depends on the context. In fact, in two of the Revelation passages, we see the elders who are sitting before the throne of God, and there's worship that's going on. They are sitting, and then they go from sitting to falling flat on their faces before uh, the Lord God. Now, we're not told if David sits throughout this entire uh, prayer. Perhaps he... he, stood up during part of it, kneeled during part of it. We aren't told, but we are told that he sat, okay? And that sitting is very significant, especially for an Old Testament saint. Now, it's true. We can kneel boldly before the throne of grace. We can stand boldly before the throne of grace. But of all of the postures of praying, this one, I think, shows par excellence that David was totally secure in God's grace. One of the verses that still blows me away when I read it is Ephesians 2, verse 6, which says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's just an unbelievable passage when you realize where Jesus is sitting, on his throne, at the right hand of the Father. It says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And when you study what Paul does as he's tying that concept together with the confidence that we have in coming before God, it truly is mind-blowing. But what's even more amazing to me is that prior to the coming of Christ, prior to his ascension to the right hand of God, David is doing the same thing in the Old Testament. This is why some commentators speak of this as being an audacious boldness and faith. Now, it's not the sitting so much that I want to talk about this morning as it is that audacious boldness and faith. Faith must characterize our prayers no matter what posture that you are 
uh, praying in. For example, you might be praying kneeling on the ground, begging God to forgive you for the hundredth time for that sin, you know, and you just can't get it off of your conscience. That, that sin just keeps coming up. You, you doubt that God's going to cast that sin into the depths of the ocean, and you, you worry about your acceptance in, in the Beloved. Well, God's not going to hear that prayer of confession no matter how many times you pray it because God does not listen to prayers that are not from faith. In fact, Romans 14 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so this concept of of faith is so important. Every aspect of prayer and worship must be entered into by faith. For prayer and worship to get past the ceiling, we need to believe, have the faith that we are accepted in the beloved, we are loved in the beloved, namely Jesus. David stands as a model of this confidence. Now, of course, David's uh, sitting before God's throne was not arrogant or prideful. The first words to come out of his mouth show amazing humility. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And let me let you in on a little secret on capitalizations in the New King James Version. Uh, You already know that any time that the Hebrew name Yahweh is in the the Hebrew, it's translated in the New King James Version with Lord, all capital letters. Now, the one exception is when you have Lord God, like in this passage here, where it's God that is in all capital letters. Uh, Lord is Adonai, and the word God in all caps is Yahweh. I have no idea why they translate it that way, but this is their consistent way of doing it. Uh, And and it's just uh, something you need to be aware of when you're reading through that. Now, Adonai emphasizes God's sovereignty, and Yahweh emphasizes God's transcendence and aseity. Aseity is one of his attributes. The Hebrew root for the word Yahweh is I am. And it especially emphasizes God's aseity, which means God is self-sufficient. He didn't need creation. He didn't need anybody else. He is totally uh, transcendent from his creation. He doesn't need the creation, but his creation is 100% dependent upon God's overflowing uh, goodness. And so... Adonai Yahweh, sovereign Lord, is the way some translate it, uh, is a a phrase that really emphasizes the transcendent uh, sovereignty of God over all creation. So now you know how to read two names uh, from the New King James Bible, and I'm going to read it again just so you see how it works. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, O Adonai Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? He is so overwhelmed uh, that the sovereign Yahweh would be so kind to him. He realizes he's just a tiny speck in the universe, and he's an even tinier speck in comparison to the transcendent God that he is addressing. And so that's the implication of the double name. The use of Adonai Yahweh shows humility. The expression, who am I, shows humility. The phrase, what is my house, shows humility. And here's the point. When you approach the throne of God with total faith and 
complete humility. That's point two. So faith, point one, and humility, point two. God loves to hear your prayers. But those first two points are also critical to responding to disappointments properly. Uh, We must accept those disappointments with a faith, point one, that God is working all of these things together for our good and for His glory, and with the humility to recognize it doesn't matter what God gives or what God takes away. What we have is way more than what we deserve. Okay, That would be the humility that we're approaching God with. I mean, think about it. God has adopted us when we were the children of his enemy, Satan. He not only adopted us and allowed us to take his name, but he clothed us. He washed us. He he has strewn all kinds of Christmas presents, if you want to think about it that way, uh, uh, in front of us. David's focus was not on the one gift he had hoped would be under the tree. In fact, he doesn't even bring it up in this entire prayer, not once. His focus was on God's goodness, greatness, graciousness in comparison to his own uh, comparative uh, unworthiness and smallness. Now, the third thing that I'm sure was very pleasing to God was that David accepted God's huge gifts under his Christmas tree with astonished delight. Verse 19, And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Adonai Yahweh. How could this be such a small thing for you, Lord? I mean, I'm blown away by this, and yet I know this is nothing for you. That's what he is saying here. God had promised uh, that he would uh, give covenant succession, that Solomon would be able to build his temple, his earthly temple, that he would not take his mercy away from his descendants, that he would give him an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, that his one of his sons would be the Messiah. It's an incredible honor that he puts before him. And he's saying, in a moment, this is huge. But here he says, Lord, you are so great that this is nothing for you. Verse 19 continues. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Adonai, Yahweh? Now, this is the first of ten times that David calls himself Yahweh's servant or slave in this prayer. Ten times. And God is so exalted above mankind that David is blown away that God would stoop down to minister to a slave like him. Now, it's not like like David doubts God's going to answer his prayer. He doesn't have any doubts. God is a God who cannot lie, and he knows God is going to answer. Uh, But... He couples his bold faith with astonishment at the greatness of God, the foreknowledge of God, and the kindness that exceeds anything that man would do. And when you are astonished that God would take you as his servant, let alone that he would bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, when you are blown away by that fact, you've got what what it takes to be able to handle your disappointments uh, much better. But when you take God's incredible blessings for granted, you act as if you deserve more. You complain when just a few of the many, many blessings he's given to you are taken away. Then it's guaranteed you've got a character flaw that's going to make you disappointed with life over and over and over again. It's a character issue that needs to be dealt with. Fourth, David's response was a response of gratitude. Look at verses 20 through 21. Now, what more can David say to you? 
for you, Adonai Yahweh, know your servant, for your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. David recognizes he did not get the, these gifts from God because of his own righteousness. Instead, he said, these promises are, quote, for your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these things. So this whole prayer is so God-centered, and I want you to notice again, even though before he said for God, this is a small thing, for David, he says that they are all these great things. They are great things. And so he has, is showing gratitude. Yeah, you show me a person who has as much gratitude as David did, even after a disappointment, and uh, you'll be showing me a person who handles disappointments with poise. Gratitude to God is one of the graces that flows from the Holy Spirit. The fifth response was one of praise. Verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Adonai Yahweh, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He piles terms of greatness one on top of the other. The phrase, you are great, when it's followed by Adonai Yahweh doubly emphasizes God's sovereign greatness, but then he adds, there is none like you. David wouldn't even dream of comparing God's greatness to any human greatness, uh, nor does he uh, even think God is comparable to the greatest gods that human brains have concocted because he says, nor is there any God besides you. And then he ends by saying that nothing that David has ever heard with his ears can compare with the greatness and the goodness of God. These affirmations of greatness are the essence of worship. Okay? And the greater God appears in your mind's eye, the lesser the problems and the disappointments of life will seem to be. Think about it this way. If you had a million dollars, just imagine that you're a millionaire and you're pulling a $100 bill out of your wallet, and the wind catches it and blows it away, and you can't find it, you've lost that $100, as a millionaire, you're not going to be nearly as disappointed as if all that you own is $1,000, and that $100 is lost. Well, in much the same way, <clears throat> the, the greater... Uh, God is, in your mind, the less the disappointments are going to seem to be to you. If God is small in your mind, it's like $1,000, God's $1,000 to you, then the disappointment, which is $100, is going to seem huge. But praise is one of those tools, it's one of those keys to making our minds, which are so shallow, making our minds realize that God is so much greater than anything we have ever thought about or conceived of. Praise helps us to realize we got a million dollars when He has given to us Jesus, and with Jesus He has given us all things, and it helps us to handle our disappointments a lot better. The more time you spend in the discipline of praise, the greater God will become in your vision and the greater will be your appreciation of what you have. And it will also make your faith grow because uh, your problems will be not, you know, the mountains you think are there, they're going to turn into molehills. You can kick them down real easy with faith when you see God is great. Now, it may seem superfluous to tell God he is great when he knows that he's great. 
okay? But David is not doing so to give God information he doesn't have. You don't tell your wife that you love her, you appreciate her to give her new information, right? Uh, You don't tell her how beautiful she is because she lacks information about herself. No, it's of the essence of relationship that you praise the person you have this relationship uh, with. And David's heart so overflows with appreciation to God for what he has done and promised that David cannot help but overflow with praise. And praising God is almost as good a cure for disappointment. When you've had a huge disappointment, start praising Him. It's almost as good a cure as thankfulness. And of course, the next point deals with thankfulness. Remembrance of what God has done for him in the past is a form of thankfulness. Look at verses um, 23 through 24. And who is like your people? Like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Yahweh, have become their God. Now, where the previous part of the prayer was focused on God's nature, This is focused on the wonderful works of God toward the children of men. And it's a good exercise to go through both when you have uh, faced disappointments because disappointments tend to make us forgetful of all of the good things that God has done for us. Disappointments tend to make us look at the glass half empty, don't they? David refuses to do that. Instead, he has spent time meditating upon everything good that God has done. Now, I could have thrown another point in here, but I really do see it as a, uh, a sub-point to, uh, to praise. David deflects honor back to God. God honors David with greatness, and David speaks of God's greatness. God honors David as being the leader of Israel, and David says, you're the one who redeemed us to yourself as your own special people. Uh, God honors David with a kingdom forever, and David says, you know, it's just a tiny piece of your everlasting kingdom. In verse 9, God promised to make David have a great name in the earth, and in verses 23 and again in verse 26, David says that his desire is to see God's name exalted and great in the earth. So it's just another way of praising God. Now, in verses 25 through 29, we come to the petition section of the prayer, and even this section follows the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, of seeing everything, including the petitions and the requests for himself, as being requests for the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, if all prayer requests are seen as fulfilling God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven then there is no reason I can see why you cannot pray with the same confidence that George Mueller did. Everything George Mueller prayed for was expended for the kingdom. Everything. And when he had disappointments, such as his inability to become a missionary to the Jews, he just instantly adjusted to praying for and working for whatever God's will was for his life. Uh, His whole life was wrapped up in God, not his own dreams and his own uh, aspirations. And I see David is doing that. Verse 26 gives the God-centeredness of the requests. 
So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. David's prayers were powerful because David was praying that God's will would be done. He wanted God's name, God's lordship, and God's will to be exalted. And really everything he prays can be subsumed under that desire. This is what Psalm 37.4 is about. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. All of David's prayers could be subsumed under Christ's admonition in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And so if you want a prayer life that has as many answered prayers as George Mueller's have, make it your goal in life to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I think you can pray your prayers with faith because what you're going to be doing is you're going to be praying God's will when you need an automobile to continue to serve him. It's not going to be a selfish request. It's a request to be able to be used for God's kingdom. For you're pursuing God's kingdom. You're pursuing his will. Now, of course, you better use that automobile for him and not selfishly. Uh, but, but the point is, every prayer should be for his kingdom advancement. The only conditions God has placed upon our prayers being answered is three. He says that they've got to be prayed according to his will, They've got to be prayed in the name of Jesus, and then we need to encourage others to join us uh, in, in that prayer. It's an incredible promise. So what does it mean to pray according to God's will? It's not talking about the secret will of God. Deuteronomy uh, 29, 29 is it? Somewhere back there. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which he has revealed belong to us. That's the will we're to pray for. So praying according to God's will simply means praying the Scripture, claiming the promises of Scripture, the laws of Scripture, the desires of God as recorded in the Scripture, the attributes of God, the eschatology of God. It's simply praying the Bible. And that's exactly what David does in this prayer. He asks for what God has already promised he will do earlier that day. And some people say, why is David asking for something that God has already promised he's going to give? That seems pretty useless. God's promised it, so it should be done, right? And I'm going to answer that question in a moment, but I just want you to first of all notice that this is exactly what is happening in David's prayers. He prays for everything that God has just promised in the first half of the chapter. Let's begin reading at verse 25. Now, O Yahweh God, and here it is, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Adonai Yahweh, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Adonai Yahweh, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Can you see that there, the way I was emphasizing the words? God made promises. 
David just says, okay, you've made some promises, and would you now fulfill those promises in my life? He's praying according to the will of God, like all of our prayers must do. So how do we apply this? Well, when you have a backslidden relative, ask God to fulfill his will by praying such scriptures as 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. You can say, Lord, you have promised that you will answer any prayer that we offer up in the name of Jesus that is according to your will. And we believe that it is your will for Fred to be completely restored to you because have you not said, for this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification? Father, we know his sanctification is your will. And so since you have promised to finish the good work that you have begun in him, we ask with confidence that you would turn Fred's heart around right now. And we even now thank you that you will do it. We thank you for his sanctification. That's praying according to God's will, praying with confidence. Now, what about more mundane things like bread and milk and clothing? Well, wasn't that Christ's point when he told them not to worry about such things in Matthew 6? In Matthew 6, he gives an unconditional promise when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All what things? Well, the things he's been talking about, clothing and what you're going to eat. George Mueller was totally sold out to God's kingdom and his righteousness, so he knew with a certainty that God would supply all of his needs. God had committed himself to doing so, and God did it in remarkable ways time after time. And I want to read you a short section from Benji's book, which our family has been reading together recently. I hate to bother you, Mr. Mueller, began the matron, but it's happened. The children are all ready for breakfast, and there is not a thing in the house to eat. What shall I tell them? And I'll just interject here that uh, George's close friend's daughter, uh, Abigail, was playing close by, and so he brought her along with him, and he went into the dining room. Inside, they found 300 children standing in neat rows behind their chairs. Set on the table in front of each chair was a plate, a mug, and a knife, fork, and a spoon. So obviously the matron has been used to taking the actions of faith just like George Mueller has been modeling for her. It's sort of like uh, the movie, uh, what is it, Facing the Giants? You plow the field, you prepare for the rain. Say, okay, Lord, I'm going to prepare for you to bless uh, here. And, uh, and, and, and that's an action of faith, sort of like the African uh, church. You know, they prayed, uh, they had incredible doubt. So they set a prayer meeting uh, to pray for rain and everybody showed up with an umbrella except for the missionary. (laughs) But that's faith, right? You're preparing the fields for rain. Anyway, the story goes on. But there was no food whatsoever to be seen. George watched as Abigail's eyes grew wide with astonishment. But where is the food? Abigail asked in a whisper. God will supply, George told her quietly before he turned to address the children. It's not much time. I don't want any of you to be late for school, so let's pray, he announced. As the children bowed their heads, George simply prayed, Dear God, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Amen. George looked up and smiled at the children. You may be seated, he said. He had no idea at all where the food he had just prayed for would come from or how it would get to the orphanage. He just knew God would not fail the children. 
A thunderous din filled the room as 300 chairs were scuffed across the wooden floor. Soon all 300 children sat obediently in front of their empty plates. No sooner had the noise in the dining room subsided than there was a knock at the door. George walked over and opened the door. In the doorway stood the baker holding a huge tray of delicious delicious smelling bread. Mr. Mueller began the baker, I couldn't sleep last night. I kept thinking that somehow you would need bread this morning and that I was supposed to get up and bake it for you. So I got up at 2 o'clock and made three batches, batches for you. I hope you can use it. George smiled broadly. God has blessed us through you this morning, he said, as he took the tray of bread from the baker. There's two more trays out in the cart, said the baker. I'll fetch them. Within minutes, the children were all eating freshly baked bread. As they were enjoying it, there was a second knock at the door. This time, it was the milkman who took off his hat and addressed George. I'm needing a little help, if you could, sir. The wheel on my cart has broken right outside your establishment. I'll have to lighten my load before I can fix it. There's ten full cans of milk on it. Could you use them? Then looking at the orphans sitting in neat rows, he added, free of charge, of course. Just send someone out to get them. I'll never fix the cart with all that weight on it. Anyway, many people think George Mueller was just uh, being audacious. And I would say, no, he was just taking the Sermon on the Mount at face value. He was seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness with all of his heart. And he was being a good steward of every penny, by the way. And God was adding all of these things to him. Mueller had learned to take God at his word, just like David took God at his word. And this whole prayer shows an amazing combination of humility yet confidence, yieldedness to God's will, yet total boldness in asking God to fulfill his will. Now, I've had people, I don't know how many times, I've had people ask me, if God is sovereign, why pray? And I just turn it around, I say, that's ridiculous. If God is not sovereign, why pray? He can't do anything. Why would you pray to a non-sovereign God? Uh, people say, you know, if God's already promised he's going to do something in the Word, you don't need to pray. Why would you pray? And I, I say the exact opposite. If God has promised to give us certain things, and yet he has said he's going to do it through the means of prayer, then it makes perfect logical sense for James 4, verse 2, to say, you have not because you ask not. He didn't say you have not because of this, this, or the other. No, you have not because you ask not. Just ask. What's wrong with you? Ask. You have not because you ask not. God is not going to fulfill his promises without prayer. And that's why in Daniel 9, I know the objections that come into people's minds, so I'm going to address an objection here. This is why in Daniel 9, after Daniel had been reading the prophecy of Jeremiah that Israel would be in exile for only 70 years. And after doing some calculations and realizing, hey, it's at the end of 70 years, Daniel prays in earnest that God would fulfill his promise. Now, if Daniel acted like many of us act, Daniel would just say, oh, good, 
God's going to do it. He's promised. He's a God who cannot lie, and so I'm just going to sit here and watch him do it. But that's not the way God's word has us work. Instead, now that he knows what God's will is, he intensively fasts and prays for God's will to be accomplished. It wouldn't do any good for him 40 years before to be praying, Lord, bring Israel back, uh, the Jews back to Jerusalem this year. No, God, that's not God's will. God has said his will would be at the end of 70 years. So, are we going to be passive at the end of 70 years? No. Because we know his will, with real earnestness, we are going to be praying God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Can you see that? This is what prayer is all about. God has promised so many different things. It's one of the reasons why you've got to understand eschatology. You're not going to have the faith to pray if you don't understand God's will for the future. Eschatology, don't be a pan-millennialist. That's the most ridiculous concept. You cannot pray with faith if you do not understand the future. You cannot. You cannot pray with faith. The session's main goals for 2013 all revolve around improving our prayer life, and I believe our prayer life needs to be improved, and Gary's going to have a lot more to say about that in the new year, Uh, but I hope the verse, you have not because you ask not, is drilled into the consciousness of each of us. God has promised to provide for all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, but because he is bound and determined to provide those needs in a way that stirs up our faith, stirs up a relationship with him, he has also said he's not going to answer your he's not going to provide your needs if you do not pray with three conditions being met. You pray in the name of Jesus, you use the scriptures as as arguments, as reasons for why God should answer, and then you ask others to join you in that prayer. And by the way, some of you men, I've noticed, have not always been praying in the name of Jesus. Let me just give you an exhortation. Uh, Colossians, and Jesus himself said, you have to ask in my name. We have no authority apart from Christ. So begin the prayers in Jesus' name. You can end the prayers in Jesus' name, but they've got to be in Jesus' name. Okay, so there's a lot we can learn about prayer from this passage, but we can also learn about handling disappointments. Because David had already laid his all on the altar, as soon as he discerned a no from God, it was easy for him to quickly get about the business of praying for and working for what actually was God's will. The characteristics of this prayer are characteristics we must put on if we are to handle disappointments graciously. But if we put those on, what we're going to find, all of a sudden we're going to find our prayer life has changed. And God is powerfully working through us. God enabled David to store up gold and silver and wood and nails and cut rocks uh, to make the work for Solomon easier when uh, Solomon was going to do it. God allowed him to do at least that. But his whole life was about advancing the kingdom of God. And so... If you can lay your lives on the altar and say, Lord, I want my house to be yours. I want to use it for your kingdom. I want my clothing to be used for your kingdom. I want ev- and anything that cannot be used for your kingdom advancement, I want to get rid of it 
because it's just going to be a hindrance. If you can lay your all on the altar before the Lord and be consumed with a passion for God's name, God's glory, and God's kingdom, you will start finding your prayers answered just like George Mueller's. May that be true of each of us. Amen. Father, make us to be a praying people and stir up faith within our hearts. Bless this, your people, Father, with a, a, a faithful praying and a praying faith. And I pray, Lord, that uh, your grace would be so rich in this congregation that uh, upon the leverage point of Jesus Christ, this church would be able to accomplish things that are way out of proportion to our numbers and our feebleness and our lack of finances. With you, little is, uh, or great is no big deal. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to impact the nations, to impact this nation, to impact this city uh, for the advancement of your, your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.